Welcome to Har for Chabad podcast, a project of the Klein Jewish Academy. In this podcast, we take ancient Jewish wisdom and make it relevant. Each podcast includes insights culled from Jewish traditions and ideas and helps give practical ideas on how to incorporate them into your daily life. We've got uh, this week's Torah portion is the story of Noah. But there was another story in the Torah portion about the, the Tower of Babel. And that is inspiring, actually, this lesson uh, today. And the, the question that they're asking is Torah anti-science. And they start off with two scenarios here. We're using the keyboard, so keypad, yeah? Yeah, I can do Uh, so the first one is in uh, this uh, yeshiva in Brooklyn. There's a conversation that's going on. One young scholar reads the text of the Talmud. His colleague replies with an incisive question. It's a good question, and they're both stumped. Then a fellow sitting next to them picks his glass covered nose out of his book and proposes an answer. Everyone sits back and thought for a minute. Somebody wraps a pencil on the table, another strokes his beard. Finally, they all conclude the fellow is right. He has solved the problem. And so they're contrasting it with uh, this scenario, and I'm going to read it as it is written. Um, you know, so a few miles down the road, another group of people, the students, are participating in a very different kind of academic exercise. University professor clips with lightning speed through a dizzying array of PowerPoint slides as he lectures on the finer points of quantum physics. 150 students sit spellbound by their instructor and void by his enthusiasm. They're convinced that under his tutelage, they're going to do nothing less than change humanity forever. Um, it's interesting to see how someone who hasn't been in that situation idealizes it. Um, though I do remember as a teenager uh, going to a couple of science uh, lectures at uh, Seton Hall University and being spellbound, as, as they put it here. Um, in a regular college physics class, well, I'm not so sure about that. Well, whatever. It, I mean, they're, they're trying to make the point here that both groups of students are passionate about their studies. You know, both they're exerting themselves to wrap their heads around something that is, you know, very subtle. Um, might take uh, years of training to, to comprehend and appreciate. Um, but it seems like they're two different worlds. And we're going to explore the interplay between these two different worlds. Uh, I guess uh, truth in advertising, I'm going to expound it as it is in the lesson. Uh, you know, uh, my mileage may vary. Being a, an ex-scientist, uh, I, I might not uh, agree with everything that uh, is said here. Um, 
you know, is, is uh, academia something for these yeshiva students to admire, for example? Um, or is it to be regarded as a spiritual risk, you know, a distraction from uh, the true uh, goals in this world of, of religious or spiritual nature? Yeah, is ultra-Orthodox Judaism really anti-science or not? Okay, and, and we begin with the Tower of Babel. And we have that question of why was the Tower of Babel a bad thing? Uh, and let's review, uh, refresh ourselves on the Tower of Babel uh, story, as in the Torah. Um, after Adam and Eve, most of humanity lived in one region and, and one basic community, one language. Um, as the population grew, people decided to spread out a little bit, find a new place that could accommodate their needs. So they went to this uh, valley that was called Shinar. And that's when they decided to construct a, a giant monument to humanity. And let's see. Oh, well, it's, that's, that's why that question was there. And um, there we go. And we'll start off uh, with uh, Melissa. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. So the bricks were to them for stones and the clay was to them for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make ourselves a name lest we be scattered upon the face of the entire earth. So humanity progressed uh, you know, in the engineering field, shall we say. You know, they figured out they could create these things called bricks. Uh, instead of just building out of wood and stone and straw uh, or whatever grasses that, that you know this expanded their construction capability. See, Michael, I have to ask a yeah. question here. Mm -hmm. Is Babel before or after Noah? Uh, before. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah, so they you know realized that they could use this newfound technology. Um, to uh, expand their uh, the areas that they lived and expand how they lived and, and uh, yeah lived as a, as a people. God didn't seem to approve the project, and we have text one B um, and Andrea. Can let us descend and confuse their language so that one will know, understand the language of his companion. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I forgot. There we go. <laughs> and God uh, scattered them for, uh, from there upon the face of the entire, entire, entire earth 
and they started building the city. Wow. Yeah, so uh, again, uh, why was this tower such a bad thing as, as we asked here? You know, um, these people discovered this new technology and they wanted to use it to do something human, you know, build uh, something, you know, so what, what's really wrong with that? You know, as soon as they demonstrated their newfound technology, uh, God put a stop to it. And there are many different uh, opinions, of course, over the centuries from the sages and all. Uh, but we'll begin our discussion with a passage from the Zohar, uh, the book of Jewish mysticism, that refers to this story of the great flood, uh, which, you know, as, as said, uh, comes later on in this Torah portion. Um, and um, Leslie, would you like to read the uh, passage? In the 600th year of the sixth millennium, the supernal gates of wisdom will be opened and also the wellsprings of wisdom below. This will prepare the world for the seventh millennium. Like a person who prepares himself on Friday for Shabbat, as the sun begins to wane, so will be here. This is alluded to in the verse, in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Okay, so the, this passage was written in the Zohar that was uh, authored by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He lived in the uh, second century uh, common era. You know, this, he talks about uh, events that would take place like 1700 years after he wrote about them. And uh, uh, again, there's been a lot of interpretation. I, these are, I, I mean, you've probably heard uh, the prophecies of Nostradamus and how they, uh, you know, people interpret them as coming true, you know, uh, hundreds or even over a thousand years after his time. Uh, this, is, this is similar. So we have two, con two components here. We have those supernal uh, gates of wisdom at the beginning there. And then we have well springs of wisdom below. So there's two things, something coming from on high and something uh, below or in the, the mundane world, I guess you would call it. Also suggesting this all happened about 800 years from now. I assume they're going from the Hebrew calendar, not, not the Western calendar. So we're almost 5,800, right? And this is like 5,600? Right. And this is, no, this is 600th year, the sixth millennium. So that's the, that's, 
um, 50... Oh, that's 5,603 yes, yes. It's in the, on the English calendar, it's in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that in a minute, actually. Um, so people have associated these, this, the 600th year of the sixth millennium uh, with uh, two transformational shifts that occurred in world history. And we'll start with text three. Um, Paul, would you like to do that? Sure. Okay. Evidently, the Zohar is referring to the fact that the gates of wisdom in general and the gates of the Torah's wisdom specifically would open at that time. This did actually occur with regard to worldly wisdom. As for Torah wisdom, we merited in that era the revelation of the Torah's inner dimension, a part of the Torah that had previously been hidden and concealed. Uh, we're talking about the mundane world first. Okay. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to the spiritual world next. A very, very good observation. Well, spiritual side. Yeah, well, we want to do, yes. So uh, okay. in the uh, mundane world, the science and technology, well, we're talking about around the 1800s, early 1800s, 1840s, perhaps, which coincides with the Industrial Revolution. You know, that was you know, just a, this huge explosion of uh, technology that spread um, from uh, originally from Britain, the UK, uh, throughout Europe. And uh, until the 1800s, you know, our, these technological advances came pretty slowly. You know, you can look at the life of an average person in the 1700s wasn't really much different than someone who lived in the 1500s. Again, if you're an average person, I mean, if you know, it's good to be the king or, or, or the pope or what have you, but uh, we're, we're talking about the year. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, so things, well, let me give you some examples. Uh, they have a whole list here. Um, uh, the electric light was uh, invented in 1809. What? Hold on. Electric light? <laughs> yeah. I see the electric light began, began by Thomas Alva Edison. That was in the 1870s. No, that was, that was perfecting it so that you could have a, a continuous well, there battery there were very primitive batteries around that time frame so maybe that's what they're referring to here oh no battery uh let's see what they had did they have like they had a battery around 1800 yeah that was 1700s really yeah but uh you know edison made the the, the light bulb uh basically marketable and practical yeah so the whole concept of mm -hmm. of having a uh, you know, putting electric current through a, a filament right. was was back then. It was wasn't until Edison did it. 
is, you know, almost 100 years later, actually. Yeah. Steam Locomotive, 1814. Uh, the Reaper, 1831. Um, pasteurization uh, was developed in 1856. Washing machines in 1858. I don't know. They're, they're getting this. Uh, let's see. No, this well, is... In America, cotton gin is the 1790s. That's a little before this time frame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, there's. there's there's going to be thing, other things outside of this traffic light in 1868. Yeah, yeah, interesting list. Um, but the Zohar predicted, you know, all this in advance. Um, and now let's go to the, the spiritual type of revolution that, that occurred about this time. Uh, and uh, that was basically um, the uh, having Hasidus uh, come out, you know, to, for more of the the common man. Um, you know, the 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 uh, Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah was was not studied by the masses. It was reserved for. Uh, the select few uh, sages who, who were, you know, well versed in Torah and Talmud and Mishnah and all, all this, uh, then they could uh, start studying some of this mysticism. Uh, there was a, yeah, I was always taught growing up that you know you could you couldn't look at uh, Kabbalah before you were forty years old. Um, but with the, the Baal Shem Tov and uh, the, the Rebbe's, uh, this, this, you know, started to spread to, to the common people. And, uh, you know, uh, before 1840, under the leadership of Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, he, he was the founder of the Chabad movement, um, the his work, the Tanya, was published in the year 1796. Uh, so the Tanya really gives more of a, a common person the the uh, relationship between Jews and God, and you know, in terms that can be uh, better grasped by uh, more of an average person, not the uh, you know, sage or, or, or real specialist in Torah. Um, and then a few decades later, he published the, a book called Torah Or and Likute Torah. Uh, and that, again, adds uh, spiritual interpretation to the different portions of the Torah that we read each week. Uh, the first volume of Torah Or was uh, published in 1837 and Lukute Torah in uh, 1848. So uh, again, there was a seemed to be a spiritual revolution, uh, somewhat coincident with a, a technological revolution. So what's the connection? You know, um, let's see. 
Hey, Mike. Yes. I just wanted to comment that mm -hmm. the the Kabbalah was was also in the Sephardic Jewish culture prior to that time. Right, but was it as really as widespread that uh, you know it's just common to 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 to, to talk about it and, and use it as part of the religion that. I, I don't know. It might have been more so than Eastern and Central Europe. That that that's probably that that may very well be true. Can you shift the uh, part of the Zoom down because we can't see the dates with some of the other events that are trying to settle there. Um, let's see. Um, I'm not quite sure how to do that. Um, but I can uh, show your, you that uh, later. Just put the screen, bend it down a little bit towards you. Uh, towards me. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. This is it's it's this is on the hard drive. That's oh, all. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll show you that list, Jerry. Okay. And there's the spiritual one. So. Yeah. How's this? these two advances you know connected and so we'll uh go to text four and uh let's see i think we're up to you jerry okay we? yeah tertullian said what is athens to do with jerusalem what agreement is there between academy and church for this latin church father the gulf between them was unbridgeable. This assertion is of one piece with his famous statement, Credo Quia Absurdum S, that he believed because it was absurd. Such anti-rationalism never found a warm and hospitable reception among classical Jewish thinkers. Okay. Um, so it, it really depends on your mindset. Um, You know, Western culture, religion is often looked at through uh, Christian terms. You know, uh, Christianity doesn't really center on a, a list of commandments. Okay, you might uh, obey the Ten Commandments, but it, it's nothing like Judaism, where we, where everything's focused around. Obeying 613 commandments. Um, you know, uh, Christianity is, is not as much about what a person does, it's, it's more about what they believe. Uh, you believe in the right things and you're considered saved. Uh, and if you don't believe in the right things, you're often considered as damned. Yeah. Um, so the whole business of religion for those types of people is, is completely different track with the mundane world. Because if you're not focusing on actions, you just focusing on what you believe, uh, you know, you don't have to 
connect the two with, together. However, Judaism is a, is a different story. Um, you know, Judaism is about practice. And this practice has to take place within the regular mundane world. Uh, we have to do things with mundane objects uh, to obey the commandments and make them all holy. Um, you know, you have a steak. Uh, a steak is a steak. It's, it's you know, uh, people like to eat it. Uh, but if you, as a Jew, if you say a blessing over it, and uh, use a steak that has been uh, from a cow that has been properly slaughtered, you are doing a mitzvah, you're uh, obeying a commandment, and you're getting closer to God, uh, and you're releasing that uh, spiritual energy that was in that cow uh, uh, to make the world a little holier. So, so that's the difference. That's a, a total different mindset and perspective, which uh, may have skewed how you look at uh, religion and science. You know, um, you know, sometimes Judaism has some fundamental ideas that uh, are not uh, necessarily coincident with science, uh, but you know they're they're doing it through a, a certain set of logic, and they don't always have to be uh, totally disagreeing with science. You know, for instance, uh, Judaism uh, promotes the idea that the sun goes around the earth. You know, in the Torah, you see that uh, you, they you know uh, they stop the sun. You're saying they're stopping the sun. They're not stopping the earth from rotating. They're stopping the sun from moving and so they can battle or what have you. Right, but no, but you can look at it. Uh, and Judaism has been somewhat accepting, I guess, of scientific advances like, like uh, the concept of relativity. That, you know, the way you look at things um, matters, they look different from different perspectives. You're standing on the earth, you see this ball of gas or plasma, you know, going from east to west. That, so this, it appears to you that the sun is moving and the earth is still. If you were able to stand on the sun, you'd see the earth going around it. The reality is that the sun and the earth revolve around each other at a central point. That central point happens to be in the upper atmosphere of the sun. So if you were an alien out in space that's above or below the earth-sun uh, plane, that's what you would see. You would see both bodies moving but you, you would see the sun just revolving sort of around itself. Mm -hmm. right. 
So these observations are all correct. You know, it's not changing the reality of the situation. That, that you know, uh, things are evolving, and it's up to your perspective which one is doing which. You know. And scientific knowledge was common among the rabbis, you know, throughout history. We have, well, we uh, we have lots of quotes that we do from Rambam, Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, Ibn Ezra, Barbanel. They were all scientists of some sort. You know, Maimonides was a physician. Um, let's see, the uh, well, the the, the Rebbe himself studied at the Sorbonne uh, engineering. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he's, he was uh, at least somewhat uh, educated in, you know, mundane, scientific type of, of things, worldly things. So it's not just that Torah is okay with science in an ambivalent way. It's, you know, Torah actually promoted the use of science. Now, Maimonides, well, yeah, okay, so let's go back to pagan cultures. Pagan cultures believe in just a, a pantheon of gods. You need gods to do different things in, in nature. Um, from that, nature was basically unpredictable to them. And uh, people needed to explain why all of a sudden do you get this rumble and these flashes of light in the sky when it's you have know, a rainstorm. So they develop, you know, sky gods, you know, thunder gods, Thor in the, the Norse, you know, uh, and you know, uh, God for lightning, what have you. Um, Judaism believes in intelligent design from a single creator. Yeah, so the underlying premise, principle here is that the world could be understood and developed by a singular theory uh, and foundation of reason. And that's what physicists are doing all the time. They're trying to find ways to simplify explain the world uh, maxwell's equations his four equations that, that uh, describe electricity and magnetism uh, the search for this unified field theory which will combine all the forces of nature into you know one equation uh, that can explain them all so uh, that's sort of in line with what, what Judaism thinks. Okay, so text five. Uh, let's see, let's go back to Melissa, please. The account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis is stunningly original, quite unlike any other in antiquity. There are no contending forces, no battles of the gods, no capricious spirits. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God is not in nature, but above it, transcending it and ordering it according to his word. 
Nation has no will, nature has no will or set of wills of its own. This was an immense intellectual leap. If God created the world, then it is in principle intelligible. The mists of irrationality have been dispelled. Okay, so, the, you know, so this again stems back to this idea of a, of a, of a creator uh, that happens to be beyond nature, but is the, uh, you know, so that is a unified source that caused the universe to come into being. If you're like a pagan and believe that the world's a hodgepodge of competing forces, you know, there's not too much of a, a probability that you can find some theories to understand what's going on. Now, many have gone a little too far on that and talk about that science can replace the the need for an intelligent design. Uh, it's attributed that Stephen Hawking, the, the, the great uh, physicist, uh, was trying to uh, show that, okay, now I can get God out of the picture. My, my theories, you know, that have been shown to be uh, true. Um, basically, I don't, I don't need a God in, in the picture. I, I yeah, this is possibly an urban myth. I mean, he said some things to that effect, but but nothing like saying that uh, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't need to believe in God. You know, uh, that that's fine. You you can if if you can explain things in nature, that that's great. But that doesn't necessarily rule out that you have that creator that created this unity of nature. Um, and they give the example here when a person realizes how the human body contains a hundred trillion cells, each containing a nucleus with two complete sets of the human genome. And however, human genome contains more than three billion bits of information. Uh, you could see that it, 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 it's mind-blowing, you know, it, it gives you a much better appreciation for some sort of divine, intelligent design there. Now, this doesn't mean that Judaism wants every person to become a scientist, you know. Um, uh, you know, these yeshiva unit, students should uh, get get out of the yeshiva and go to go to graduate school. Uh, that that's definitely not the case. Uh, often the rebbe would uh, tell people to you know pursue their education, you know, mundane education, uh, but. There were times when people were told that's not such a good idea. So here's the general rule. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you okay. Um, if you were already in school, don't 
um, cancel your education because you found God. And if you're a yeshiva student, no one said you have to get a secular education. So when a professor would come and say, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to take away, take off. Uh, I'm not going to finish my doctorate. I'm not going to get my uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. I would say, no, 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 no. You'll impact <laughs> the world more with the letters after your name. And when a yeshiva student will write to them, you know, I'm thinking of going to college and say, take a year and study Torah for another year. Uh, maybe another year. How about one more year mm-hmm. until they got the hint? Doctor, I know the Dr. Green, Dr. like all the famous ones that we make a deal out of, they were already in school. So everyone was like, why would you, you already got a year of education, why would you waste that, you know, on, on uh, in the name of God, right? Use it. Okay, yeah, so, uh, and we can see that here in, in text six, this is a, yeah, well, I don't think it fits on the slide, yeah, so uh, let me do this one, uh, science can be understood from within Torah study, an intelligent person can understand everything about a building by looking at its, at a blueprint, and the Torah is the blueprint of the world, as described in the Talmud, through whose Torah study Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananya was able to determine the duration of a snake's pregnancy. Likewise, it was sta- it's, as it states in the Midrash, Shmuel and Rabbi Yehoshua were able to learn all about astronomy through their Torah study. There are cases where the Torah explicitly commands us to study secular topics, for example, the commandment to calculate the Jewish calendar. When a person is in a place where Torah study is forbidden, they're obligated to divert their mind to other kinds of wisdom, such as business. Secular study is permitted when one lacks the secular knowledge required to properly understand their Torah study or to perform a mitzvah. Like Rob, who apprenticed with a shepherd for 18 months, this kind of secular research is not considered Torah study, nor it is, is it considered a mitzvah, but is considered a preparatory step that facilitates Torah and mitzvah. Academic proficiency to the degree necessary, no more for earning a livelihood when one uses academics themselves as a profession. This is considered a necessary means for permissible end. So let's uh, take, take this apart a little bit. Yeah, the first way you're permitted for engaging in the sciences is when you can see those sciences in the Torah. I mean, you just you don't have to crack a science book; you're you're getting it right in the 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 Torah, the Talmud. Uh, yeah, there's uh, when you're doing the the kosher laws. Uh, there's some very specific. Uh, things with the anatomy of those animals that uh, you were uh, attempting to eat in a kosher manner. So uh, that that's that's all there. Um, you know, Torah does require some scientific knowledge. They gave the example of calculating the the months, the calendar. Um, in Maimonides' mission to Torah, which is explanation of all, all the uh, all the laws in the, in the Torah, uh, 
he uses the explanation of calculating the new month, the new moon. Um, he uses actually uh, calculations from uh, the uh, from the Greeks. Um, supposedly, the sages had different ways of calculating uh, the new moon, uh, but that was uh, lost to us. And uh, you know, now that we're in the diaspora and we needed a. Uh, a calendar that was, you know, that was uh, based on uh, science, science, and uh, and and physics. And also, how he always get people to tell him when the stars first came out, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's that was the usual way they did, right? Well, uh, for the new moon, that yeah. that was, uh, you know, you had to have people, two people, two witnesses that exactly. saw it. And they'd have like flashcards to show uh, so that you could, uh, they could figure out how the moon appeared, exactly. which way the crescent was, was, was facing and that sort of thing. Right, but now we've calculated that instead. So basically it's like in this area, sundown occurs at X o'clock. So you light your Shabbos candle 18 minutes before that. That's right. You can look on Chabad.org, Zamanim, and get that for anywhere in the world. Um, so uh, those are a, a couple of ways where the, uh, you know, we do use both. Okay, so uh, text seven. Um, let's see, we're getting a little late here. So let me just try and... <laughs> okay, so it's saying here that someone who knows how to calculate astronomical uh, events uh, should do so. And, uh, you know, uh, it says they, uh, if they do not take notice of the work of God, they do not see his handiwork. You know, it, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment that you should use that knowledge to do that. And if you don't, that's you're not performing a, a mitzvah. Um, let's see. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is uh, just saying that there are differences of opinion even among the sages, just like there are differences of opinion among scientists. That uh, here you're talking about the example of a solar year. And some say it's 365 and a quarter day, and some say it's less than that. Is it not a lot of close to the truth? I thought it was a little bit under 365 and six hours. Yeah, it's probably closer to that. But, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, they allow discussion and, and controversy. Uh, getting to a, a topic which uh, definitely uh, there's controversy between science and, uh, and, and religion is the age of the universe. Uh, we've had there are various uh, scientific theories of how many billions of years old is the, the universe. And, you know, there's studies and controversy among the, you know, secular scientists on that. Um, <laughs> well, 
in, in Judaism, you know, yeah, we're just 57, 80 some right. odd years. Well, but scientists can, uh, again, can explain that uh, through expansion of the universe. And, uh, that, that's a whole nother <laughs> lecture. <laughs> yeah. Um, people can, uh, scientists can uh, make that consistent with uh, the, the, the calendar that, you know, only has been 57, 80 years since creation. Um, but they were talking also about that. Um, no study on the dog. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That the, you know, in, in, in places like that, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be studying Torah. So what do you do? You should keep your mind occupied. And you shouldn't waste your time on frivolous things. Uh, you know, you shouldn't. You, they're saying not to bring that joke book into the into the bathroom. Maybe think about some science. <laughs> Or in in this case, it talks about uh, business calculations. Well, what if you retire? You got to worry about business. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you might worry about your finances, so you can how they can last you. But then again, if you're if this is happening on the Shabbos, the Sabbath, uh, you can't think about business things. Right. So why not? Think about relativity or quantum physics, <laughs> or it says artwork, architecture, what have you. <sighs> okay, um, let's see. And this, let me let me catch up with my notes. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, so Rob became an apprentice for 18 months so he could uh, know, well, which blemish. These are for uh, animals that are being donated, dedicated to the temple. Uh, we can't so sacrifice a, a blemish animal. There's a whole definition of blemishing. So, yeah, he studied with, with. He went to the source. He went. He went and became a shepherd. So these are the types of things we just went over. Okay. Um, yeah. So they they give the example of the equivalent. Um, let me. Yeah, get that uh, would be the rabbi, a rabbi taking courses in electrical engineering to apply to the laws of shops, for example, or courses in food science to apply the, the kosher laws, uh, or courses in fertility, medicine to help struggling couples conceive while in the keeping them, uh, allowing them to keep the laws of family purity. And yeah, so uh, for a rabbi to become competent in a certain area uh, of law, uh, they might actually be studying uh, you know, modern 
science, medicine. Yeah, and Some people might go the route of pursuing a secular education to earn a livelihood, and that's accepted. Yeah, I think all of us around the table. <laughs> but you must remember, a Jew must remember that you know the Torah is the ultimate eternal wisdom. It's unchanging and it's not limited by time or space or um, God-given limits of nature, I suppose, put it here. So any foray into secular science needs to be within that context. And if it's not, uh, you can get into some problems here. Yeah, the first uh, type of issue is that uh, studying science, again, is, is changing your perspective. It's changing the way you think. Uh, Talmudic logic is quite different than uh, the scientific method. Yeah, so it's a, it's a different way of looking at things. Um, Judaism is about primarily the relationship between you and God and relationships aren't just affected by what you do but also how you think and feel so if you're coming at it through um, a, a more secular perspective it it might affect those those relationships. Um, you know, uh, law puts many safeguards in place to protect the sanctity of marriage, as the rabbi was saying. Um, you know, uh, they you don't even allow uh, unmarried man and woman to be alone together in the same room. Uh, you know, from our secular world, you figure, well, what's the big deal? But uh, Judaism doesn't look at it that way, looks at it as a big deal. Uh, 
yeah, same principle applies to the divine relationship. Relationship, yeah, getting involved with, uh, you know, uh, studying different religions, for example, or uh, some non-Torah discipline can can disturb the relationship between a, a Jew and God. Um, and I think this is talking about the mitzvah of sitzit. Yeah, so we have these sitzits, these fringes that allow a person to remember all the, the mitzvahs. And yeah, don't not to go astray. Getting involved with those beliefs can disturb that that uh, intimate relationship. Yeah, so when you engage in secular studies, you don't want it to invade this sacred space and this relationship you have with God. Yeah, so as you learn things, um, you absorb that material and, and it affects the way you think and the way you look at the world. And that's so for some people that might not be uh, advisable to uh, go out of the religious or spiritual uh, environment because that the way that might change their, their way they look. Um, and it's interesting they use a, a science fiction analogy here. Uh, it's the year 2121 when citizens' brains are fitted with computer chips. Chips are serving various functions that improve physical and mental health and quality of life. But the army is concerned about enemy country hacking into the brains of, the, of its soldiers. One risk is that the enemy could program the soldiers to run in the wrong directions, shoot at wrong targets at the wrong time. A more insidious and dangerous threat would be for them to hijack the brain altogether, causing soldiers to no longer accept their identity or recognize the righteousness of their cause. To hijack the brain is to hijack the entire person. Yeah, Well, we see that now, not with human beings that have the chips, but self-driving cars. Yeah, worrying about that sort of thing. Like by vaccinating. So they go on about a professor spouting harmful ideas and getting a person to a certain mindset that could have a detrimental impact to uh, the students. Um, let's see. And Rabbi Shneur Zalman was even talking about that, you know, back, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years ago. Yeah, and, and, yeah and he's you saying that well, yeah. oh there it's okay. That's good. But he's saying that you know it, it 
it it doesn't have to be yeah this is not gonna it's not brainwashing for everybody you have you know uh people like maimonides and nachmanides um they engaged in you know secular science medicine and uh they were fine <laughs> uh but uh it isn't for everyone it's crucial to be mindful of determining what sort of secular studies we're going to engage with. Well, we should remain focused on the purpose of the study and the broader context that the purpose serves, you know, uh, which is living a life as a productive and engaged Jew with your head in the right place, as opposed to you know, going off based on uh, perhaps some fringe science or uh, uh, yeah, different ideas that are against, again, sever that relationship between you and God. So let's get back to the Tower of Babel. Okay. Yeah, why was it frowned upon by God? And, and then we'll bring it back to the Torah's perspective about science and technology in general. The Torah view on secular studies is similar to the Torah's view on many other things in life. It's not a question whether something's good or bad. It's a question of what you're doing with it and why. Now, um, again, you could uh, have that stake if it's not uh slaughtered as such as kosher uh you know it's you're not you're not performing a a mitzvah uh but if it is you are you know so it's it's of course we're telling you to get your kids to eat a steak <laughs> one vegan one vegetarian i'm stuck um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, you, and if you eat it mindlessly, you know, even if it's a kosher steak, you put it on the plate and you just, you know, wolf it down, you don't think about it. Uh, that's not the same as consciously saying a prayer before eating it and saying prayers after eating the meal. You know, you're being mindful that this has been given to you uh, by uh, God and <laughs> that's right. Not 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 your not your butcher or your your supermarket, but it's ultimately has come from God, and uh, you're going to use that nutrition and energy that you get out of that to do more good deeds. Um, you know, and God created a world with all these wonderful features and laws of nature. He created it all for a purpose. If studying those phenomena and, uh, and the science behind them, that we have, we, you know, scientists have, have gotten out of them by studying them, uh, if it can be done for a purpose and a, a way that's fully in line with that purpose, that's great. Yeah. Um, 
it helps us to serve God properly if we put in that context. The Tower of Babel was an exercise in, well, science they say here, but uh, technology engineering. According to one opinion, they were working on a way to break free of the gravitational pull. I thought that one was a little interesting. Uh, so this was this uh, Rabbi Yonathan, I bet, I bet Schultz, Schultz. Um, yeah, I don't know what time frame he was. Oh, from. It's like a very early fantasy. <laughs> Want to establish a civilization, civilization of whom? Where do we be spared from our Free Jules Verne? <laughs> future? Well, yeah. Gravity rules everywhere. That's how we get there. It's going to close. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were thinking about it. They were on the right track. So that was interesting, you know. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, what was the Tower of Babel? Bad thing. Uh, so it wasn't the technology behind it, but they were trying to one up God here. You know. You know, finally, thousands of years later, and we've learned how to fly. Um, you don't see this uh, dichotomy between science and religion uh, when you see a bunch of ultra-Orthodox rabbis flying to Israel in LL jets. Uh, you know. Why not? Because the problem with the Tower of Babel wasn't the technology, it was the attitude of the people. They thought they're going to replace God, and instead uh, they were using and they were using that technology to do that. Uh, your rabbis on your LL jet are using it so they can get to the land, the promised land, <laughs> and right. they perhaps perform some mitzvahs yeah, so there. Get, get a kosher meal. <laughs> <laughs> and they, yeah, they definitely get the kosher meals there too. So they don't have to worry about that. Uh, studying these things are good when they improve the world and bring it closer to a divine home by helping people live healthier, easier, and more productive lives. So definitely not anti-science. Um, you know, of course there are dichotomies there. There are uh, arguments, but uh, as they sometimes say, science is is often catching up to uh, the truth in the Torah on on various things. Um, And this also answers our question about that Zohar linking the explosion of modern science with the spread of Hasidus in the 19th century, in the 1840s, etc. Now, for the world to properly use and benefit from modern science, it must have the tools to incorporate that knowledge in a healthy, godly way. So actually this spread of Jewish spiritualism helped enable the scientific revolution. You know, I've, I've read stories about how, you know, so many things came out of Vienna at the turn of the uh, 19th to the 20th century. Um, 
that you know maybe things like the theory of relativity and uh, wouldn't have happened if you didn't have this confluence of people and events and thoughts in science, in religion, in art, architecture, all come together. Well, yeah, but I mean, there was a lot of the uh, key players happened to be in Vienna at one time or another during that time frame. Yeah, they could uh, bounce ideas off of each other. The physicists, physicists were were definitely bouncing ideas off of each other. But a lot of the besides being in Vienna, also New York and Berlin, but oh, sure, sure. Yeah, just like the. Uh, the Industrial Revolution really started in Britain. Mm -hmm. And the British uh, were actively trying to keep that in the British Isles. They didn't want it spreading to Europe. Right, they they thought it was, side of it, too. it was a strategic uh, advantage to, <laughs> to be technologically superior. Um, so that's why it really happened in the 1790s, uh, started in the 1790s, but it didn't start really spreading until around 1840, mm -hmm. because they were keeping that. And we have that in, in our common, uh, in our, uh, you know, our military uh, today. Uh, you know, uh, the U.S. Is, uh, has been technologically superior, but now uh, you're up against the uh, peer adversaries like China and Russia and uh, you know in some places they're they're uh, in advance uh, more advanced than the US in certain technologies so it's an interesting uh, environment where uh, the US has never really been in a, in a position where they'd have to play catch up Um, let's see. I think I sort of explained this. Okay, yeah. And, and so that's what they're trying to say here and in, in terms of the connection that you, you have this spirituality that spread throughout Europe and created an environment where you could... Uh, again uh, work in the scientific field and, and, and spread that as well. Um, let's um, yeah yeah so I know what's behind you. <laughs> what's behind all this you know uh, again we have uh, a god that's watching that's that's uh, in charge of things, and we should be mindful of him. And uh, okay, so let's talk about for in conclusion. I yeah, I haven't been a little bit late. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the internet. You know, it can be used in significant ways to, to bolster our connection with and awareness of God. Certainly, uh, Chabad uses it, Chabad.org um, uses quite extensively 
to help uh, with uh, teaching uh, uh, Judaism and, uh, and all sorts of things that are connected with Judaism. You know, allows the Torah, the internet allows the Torah to be disseminated and spread more quickly than ever before. Um, and it helps us to conceptualize these concepts taught by the Torah thousands of years ago. And let's see, that was, yeah, okay, so that was this thing. Uh, yeah, so we can visualize that that last uh, text uh, a lot better than we could have 2,000 years ago. You know, we have Zoom, we have these live streams, we have all this technology, you know, people can um, give a lecture and be heard all around the world. Uh, we sometimes stream this on uh, Facebook Live and uh, there are probably a, a lot more people who at least touch, see this, you know, just browsing around Facebook uh, than we have here in our, our class tonight. Um, you know, you could, you could, uh, you know, um, crowdfund, uh, you know, some sort of uh, needy project in Africa somewhere with, you know, getting donations from all over the world. Very, you know, cultures are, are integrating, uh, learning about each other and, and, and coming together a little bit more. Uh, so does the Torah view God and science as mutually exclusive? I, I think we can conclude that the answer is no. You know, science is a, is a powerful tool, but tools need to be used properly. In the religious context, the tool needs to be used to promote godliness. And, uh, and that's why the groups like Chabad are, you know, are, have very much embraced the internet. There are some Jewish uh, groups that ban the internet. Oh, we can't use it. Then, you know, afraid that that negative influence might come in. But uh, you know, you need uh, everything has to be uh, done. You know, based on risk. There's, uh, I would imagine, the uh, Habad made the uh, cost-benefit analysis and realized that the benefits of disseminating all this information on the internet was uh, uh, better than the risk of uh, corrupting people's ways of thought. And after all, they're on the Philad website for not watching porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can't prevent somebody that's Sitting on the computer to go in there, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you could have uh, filters or whatever, I suppose. 
yeah, so you need to approach science at least, uh, you know, in the right perspective uh, and for the right purpose and within the guidelines that we've discussed, yeah. Uh, and if we do so, we can elevate academia like we elevate that kosher steak that we ate. Uh, we can deepen our understanding of our religion and our observance at the same time as we understand the world better. Any questions? Oh, we actually have the advertisement for next week's class. Okay, loyalist leaders versus moral mentors. How important is to being a top dog? So we're now back to the Wednesday uh, 7.30 uh, start time. So uh, have a good rest of the week and hope to see you back then. This podcast is produced by Harfer Chabad and the Klein Jewish Academy. To learn more, visit harferchabad.org forward slash podcast.